I was just about to settle into my groove by saying good morning, because that's what I do. But uh, good afternoon. Uh, <laughs> this morning we'll be going through Second Timothy chapter 3. And as you know, we've been going through Second Timothy for a while now, and it has been a joy uh, to to go through it this past week and to learn from it and to try to mine out of it something that I could convey to you uh, profitably and to your help. Several weeks ago, it was Jake who started Second Timothy and focused on the thought of fanning into flame what Timothy had received as a gift by the laying on of Paul's hands, the spirit of power and love and self-control. So as hitting on the, the theme of the book would indicate, fanning into flame is a major point in this part of Second Timothy as well. So we're going to look at how Paul moves from 2 Timothy 2 into 2 Timothy 3 and sees opposition and persecution coming and uses them to push Timothy and provoke him into fanning into flame the love that he has for God both through the reading and understanding of the Scripture and by looking to others who have faithfully followed Jesus Christ. So last week, at the end of Second Timothy 2, Paul urged Timothy to kindly, patiently, gently correct his opponents in the hope that God would grant them repentance. And you might imagine that this would excite Timothy. Uh, this would get Timothy in perhaps the vein of thinking, well, this is going to be the time where my ministry will progress, will grow, will, where we're coming into a new time where the gospel is going to start conquering things, where it's been so powerful so far, right? He's looking at Paul's ministry, probably sees how fruitful it has been. He's been with him through a lot, but he's also seen him conquer a lot. And now Paul is writing to him, telling him, Look, God may grant these people, these opponents of the scripture, may grant them repentance as well. But Paul doesn't let him get ahead of himself and restrains him in chapter 3 and says, I need you to understand these things. So he'll slow him down right here and we'll see how Paul again pushes Timothy to fan into flame the gift that he has been given. In doing so, we'll see our big idea, which I'm going to frame as coming times of difficulty should push us toward knowing God's word, God's work, and God's people. So once again, that would be coming times of difficulty should push us toward knowing God's word, God's work, 
and God's people. Have you ever heard of or watched a show about or read a book about fortune tellers? I know they're often featured as on the periphery of a show or uh, in the in the background of a book and there's this idea that they know the future and that they are able to tell you something that you'll be able to act on and achieve some dream that they imagine you have that's not uncommon from every other dream that everyone else has. But anyway, the fortune tellers come up quite a bit. I heard of one this past week, uh, through a man who had supposedly in the 70s been given the understanding that he was the son of God. Of course, that is incorrect, was incorrect, and shown to be so because the world was going to end that year, he said. And uh, we've had about 40 of those years since then, so he was very wrong. But he got that impression from walking into a bookstore, reading this book that this psychic had read, and then going, believing her, going to her and, and pleading to know what was coming. And she, she told him, she told him what she thought at least, but he believed that spirits were going to start speaking through him. And so he just gave himself over to that. And he's been writing books and making money since then doing these things. Or you might think of Saul, who towards the end of his kingship, he is going to go out to this battle and God has basically told him, I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not talking to you. And Paul, or Paul, not Saul, doesn't end run or tries to around God and go to Samuel through a fortune teller, basically. And the fortune teller tells him, no, you're, you're not going to, to get to Samuel through me, but she does it anyway, and Samuel comes up, and she's as surprised, it seems, as Saul is. But in these fortune tellings, we have a much surer source. We have the scriptures. We have men like Paul who were able to disclose what was coming, and not specifics, because those would be far too useless. We need to understand the bigger picture. We need to understand how to function in more of our lives than than knowing what tomorrow holds. So in the first part, in the first nine verses of chapter three, we see how Paul is going to tell us about the future. He's going to tell us a bit about the future, then tell us a bit about right now, and then tell us about the future again and then tell us what we should do about it in the next paragraph. One thing that really struck me as I started to study this passage was the way that the just the English verbs come off, that it starts out, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So they are coming, they're in the future, they will come. And then further down he says, that among them, among these people, are those, among them are those 
who creep. So he's back into what's happening now. And then later he goes all the way back. We'll talk more about it, but it goes all the way back to Exodus and then jumps ahead into the future again. I was trying to figure out exactly what Paul was meaning. He's telling the future, looking at the present, then looking at the far past, and then looking at the future again. And meanwhile, telling Timothy all about this, seemingly in a way that the church could hear and understand, because these letters were originally just read to the people, right? They were explained later, but they were they were supposed to be understood at, at one or two readings. So what was Paul meaning here? Now remember that Paul had taught Timothy and the entire congregation week after week. So they were familiar with much of the way he spoke, the words he used, the phrases he used, and one of those is the last days. And you see the last days there, and at first I wasn't sure if this is the way that the last days are spoken of in the rest of the Bible, or if these are the last days uh, that Paul is speaking of differently here. And I think we're given a clue in the end of verse 5, where Paul writes, avoid such people. So we'll talk more about these people, but I wanted to, to bring it home kind of to these are things that we should be concerned about. These are things that are not going to be happening in some distant future, but these are important things for us now. These last days are these days. Uh, if Paul is telling Timothy, avoid such people, They've got to be around pretty soon in order for Timothy to avoid them. If they're not around, then there's no one to avoid. So Paul is speaking to Timothy not only of these people that are coming, and but these times, these times of difficulty. And I think, again, just to dive into this a little more, those times, there's more than one, which means it comes and goes. This is not a time of difficulty like all of a sudden we'll look out the window and just terrible things will be happening all over the place without end. But these are times that are coming and going. These are times where it's difficult for a while and then we recover. And then there's a different period where that same thing happens. And we have to, again, do do these things that Paul's going to tell us about, do these things over and over again so that we are well prepared for these many times that are coming. Paul tells us that these times are coming because of the type of people here. And we could go through, perhaps you are on one side or the other of whether or not you want me to dive into each individual section or phrase here and tell you what each one of these means and how they affect us. But I just want to make two observations out of this list. One is that the lovers of self kind of flavors the whole rest of the list. That this is something that is at the origin of it. All the rest of these flow out of a love of self. It's the opposite of the love of God. So as the rest of these flow out, the other thing that we can observe is that they're all together. That these things are not, some people do two or three of them, others do four or five of them, some do one. You have to avoid such people. 
Instead, Paul has built up a list of they do this and this and this. These are all character qualities of them. And he cautions us, cautions Timothy against them because of how they will infest the church. Notice at the end where he says that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They're in the church. That's where Paul is telling them to be careful of them. So this is not the outside world coming in and trying to oppress the church. This is the church within itself being deluded by people who are joining. Again, to refer back to last week where people were being granted repentance and joining the church, some of those people might not have been genuine. They might have joined the church without really believing. And so Paul is warning Timothy against these people will dilute the church, dilute the church and cause it to be not as powerful, distracted, not united. As this list comes to an end, we do find that verse we've mentioned before, avoid them, avoid such people. So there are people inside the church who apparently are carrying on their lives in a very godly way, but getting to know them, you can tell that they are lovers of self, lovers of money, prideful, arrogant, on and on. Now, if that's the way these people are, then why are they a part of the church? I think it's because they're so good at being godly and acting godly. And they're, they're deceitful. They're tricky. They're, we're, we find out that we want to distance ourselves from them because we don't want to give them credibility. We don't want them to have a, a hold in the church. It also struck me that if we're to avoid them, we have to know them pretty well. If these people are so deceptive as to be able to continue on in the church, then we should not just make the first judgment and say, ah, well, I know you, you're in Second Timothy 3, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. That's not the way that we should treat people. We need to get to know them in order to get to know who they are. What makes them function? What makes them run? A point that we'll make later is that sometimes the difficulty of faith makes people pretty depressed, drains them of, of life and stamina. We don't want to count them out because they're having a difficult point, a difficult time in their faith. But we do want to make sure that we know the people and that we're avoiding them properly. Now, avoiding could be many different things. It could be anything from we don't talk to them, don't engage them, don't invest our time in them like we ought to be doing with the rest of the church. It could be that as they interact with us, we make others aware of who they are, what seems to motivate them. Uh, I would encourage you to, if you think that that's going on, to start with the pastors, to start with the elders and, and talk to them first uh, and see if there's 
more to that, more that needs to be done uh, concerning these people. But mostly, we need to get to know them first. We need to interact with them. Paul goes on from there to tell us about those who are among these people who are false teachers, who take advantage of the poor and the weak. And as they're doing so, they are, again, drawing away pieces of the church, diluting the teaching, making it not as effective, not as rich. So they're oppressing the church. And Paul says that just as Janus and Jambres oppressed Moses, so these men will oppose the truth. Now, hopefully, sometimes when we come across names in the Bible, we just think, oh, there's more names and we'll just keep going and let someone else worry about that. And and I don't know who's connected where. Well, you could look these two names up, right? And you wouldn't find them anywhere else. So that wouldn't be helpful. Uh, but it's it's been held that throughout church history, these are the two magicians that Paul probably knew about first, well, firsthand in the sense that he re- he was able to read some other writing that they still had at that point. That Moses didn't go into the detail of naming them because it wasn't important back when he in Exodus when he was writing Exodus to name these two magicians. But when he gets opposed and he's dropping his staff and his staff is turning into a snake, Pharaoh calls magicians to come and do the same things. Well, these are their names, Janus and Jambres. And if you remember the rest of that, you'll see how they were opposing the truth. So these men are opposing the truth in the same way. They're trying to bring forth the same amount of authority, the same weight of teaching. They're trying to do the same things that Paul and Timothy are doing. So then Paul, without letting Timothy grow too discouraged about how effective these men will be in opposing the truth, he says they will not get very far, verse 9, for their folly will be made plain to all as was that of those two men. So if you remember those two men, they went on and for a while they were able to emulate, make the same types of miracles that Moses was. It's interesting that they'd never made anything better. They always could just make it worse like Moses was doing. But they they ran out of their tricks. They could no longer do the same things. And so it became apparent to everyone that these these magicians weren't anywhere near the brilliance and the the inspiration that God had given to Moses to show the people that he was rescuing them. So these people, these men who try to lead opposition in the church, it will also become apparent that they're not being effective, that they're not getting much done. And then ultimately, in the end, those two were were given boils and were not even were even ashamed to go into the presence of Pharaoh. And then Moses took the whole people out and completely embarrassed the whole country, the whole God system of the Egyptians, and utterly usurped them and pillaged them. So these two men, 
failed and failed miserably. And so will those who oppose Timothy and oppose the truth more than just Timothy. But more than that, in the end, when Jesus comes again, these men will be shown to be in complete folly as they have tried to tear apart what God has been working to build and what God has been victorious in building. So we can take a step back here at the end of this paragraph and just remind ourselves some of the things that we should apply to our own lives. And just a few of them are that we should understand that opposition is coming, that there are times and there are rests, but there are times of difficulty. We should be able to identify it. We should look around and be able to see the oppression, both from inside the church in how some might be trying to tear it apart or difficulty might be taught in the church. But we can also look to the wider church. And this past week I asked Sarah Elizabeth how uh, controversial I should get in my list here. So we're going to go for all the way. Practicing... (laughs) Practicing homosexuals in the church. Now, this can be controversial. So we'll start there. And the reason we do is because this is a serious thing in our time. And I'm talking about not those who are plagued by the temptation of homosexuality. There's a difference between having an attraction to someone of the same sex and then acting on that. And there's a further uh, perversion in not only acting on that, but then presenting it as something that needs to be celebrated and something that needs to be incorporated into the church. So you might have heard of denominations making priests or bishops or others in leadership, uh, making that they open that up to the practicing homosexual. Now, this is not to say that that person could not be, by by their godliness, uh, in that position. But they cannot practice sin, like the sin of homosexuality, while holding that position. You can't you can't be in unrepentant sin while you attempt to lead the church of God and to function well within it. Even you have to be submissive to God's word. You have to acknowledge that homosexuality and its acts are wrong and that these are sins, temptations, the things that God has not created that must be pushed against. And so that would be one example of within the church, and again, the broader church here, we can look around and see that this is one way that opposition and oppression has come into the church is this call for for all Christians, all churches, to accept practicing homosexuals into the regular life of the church without telling them, you know this is a sin, you know this is something that we love you so much, we want you to, to be delivered from, and we will pray for you and help you, and here's my phone number, and let's work on this like any other sin, right? Just like any other sin that we want to work to purge from us, but we can't celebrate it. 
Now, this is going to have just as many nuances, so don't overstate this next example, but also Roman Catholicism. Now, I don't want to draw an exact parallel between the two examples I'm giving, but Roman Catholicism, in large part, teaches a doctrine, a teaching that will not lead you to salvation in Jesus Christ. If you follow most of their teachings, it's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. It is salvation by grace through faith that you have to help and work alongside in order to earn and keep grace. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, here's all you need, work to keep it. It is, here is all you need, this is your Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice. Give thanks. So those two applications are just ways that we need to to be clear what the gospel is and the change that the gospel calls for. And we need to make sure that subtle things in the church do not separate us or draw us apart or push us away from each other, but draw us closer together to be able to not only point to the gospel, but to point to how we can love others well as they struggle like we do with sin. Two more applications there. We get to know the people. Before we can avoid them, we know them. We should have a deeper discipleship process. We should get in each other's lives, as we'll see that Paul did with Timothy. And be assured that it will fail. Whatever opposition there is to the church, it will fail. And it might seem different right now, but like Timothy, I encourage you to fan the flame, keep the gift, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And all that oppose you will fail. As we go into 10 through 17, I want to preview next week's sermon. Not to say that this next chapter, this next paragraph will be any shorter, so don't get your hopes up. But next week, I'm going to look at just verses 16 and 17. And Paul says a lot there, a lot about the Bible that we hold so close to us and hold as so important. Calvin said that we should hold it like we do God. We should, it is our, our window to Him. It is our, our ability to see and to experience Him in one of the most vivid ways here now. So that will be next week. But as we step into there, we'll look at how important Paul has been and how important the, the Word of God has been to Timothy and how important Paul pushes it on Timothy to say, this is what, these are the things that are going to help you as this oppression, this 
opposition, this persecution comes. So Paul starts with, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He starts out there with a list that could be much longer. Surely his teaching summarizes so much more. This is not quite as detailed of a list as the list he's given about the wicked in the paragraph before. But he does give us a lot of information here. I think one of the most important things is the type of discipleship that Paul was used to. I think he would give the same testimony about any of the people that he was discipling at that time. That they not only knew his teaching, which might be the easier level for most of us to open our Bibles and turn to each other and say, here's what the Word of God says. But then also to know my conduct, not only in good times, but how do you act with your children when they're driving you absolutely insane? How do you react in that situation? Timothy knew Paul's conduct. He knew his aim in life, which must have been a continual reiteration, not just telling Timothy, this is the aim of my life, but that Timothy could see it in Paul over and over again, that as they did their discipleship group, their discipleship time, it was apparent that this this is what really drives Paul. This is what's behind every part of his life. He knew, and Paul knew that he knew. His love, his steadfastness, again, continual things, things that uh, that Paul just didn't tell him, these are the things I love, this is how I was steadfast yesterday. Timothy saw Paul in every circumstance, saw how his faith held together in love and how his steadfastness kept him going. But then the most interesting two are the last two here. <clears throat> My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. And he lists several of the cities, even the first city he went to in Antioch, which he experienced persecution and suffering there as well. Now to know at that level how Paul dealt with persecution and suffering and that he encountered it so often must surely have given Timothy confidence that the Lord is enough to bring me through those same situations. Indeed, that's where Paul goes next. In verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, if this is what we should expect, that we are, as Christians, desiring to be godly, then we too should expect persecution. One thing is we should not limit that persecution to say that it's all the time. Again, we're back to the point that we made early, that these are times of difficulty. These are periods of persecution, rest, and return. And then also that 
as we're persecuted, it doesn't always take the same form. It's not always this way that Paul has described before, that people are in among the church causing trouble. It could be your own personal life, people at work, the difficulty that you find in being judged at work as far different than other people just because of your honesty, your ability to make statements and stick by them, your any of your God-given talents or or spiritual gifts. Having those things like love, joy, peace, patience, those are the spiritual gifts I'm I'm talking about. When when those are seen, those might be points of persecution. You might have to endure because you're known like that. It might also be the persecution of those nearest to you who who aren't taking a I'm going to oppress or I'm going to persecute him or her today. But it's the way that sin and temptation work out in their life and how your own temptation and your own sinfulness works against that and how your selfishness or your greed or your pride works against them. So it might be even inside you. So persecution can come from all around and that that last realm would even show us that Satan and the world, the flesh, all influence us, all persecute us as we seek to be godly. And then Paul encourages Timothy again in verse 14, but as for you, and here he doesn't encourage him with the past, with looking back or with looking to the end times where Jesus will return, but he has this confidence that God is working in him to continue. He knows that just as Paul has been delivered by the Lord in the past, like he says in verse 11, through them all the Lord rescued me, he knows that Timothy has this same Lord. So he tells him, continue in what you have learned from me firmly and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it, and from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. At first I I thought, all right, I think we have a clear indication here of what he has learned. He's learned both from Paul and he's learned from the scriptures and he's learned, as we learned in the first chapter, from his mother and grandmother and their faith. And I think all of those are true, and I think that that's a good reminder for us to look to the people that are around us, the people who are also believers. How do they live their lives? How can we draw encouragement from them continuing in faithfulness and steadfastness? But I think Paul is also saying a little more here, that when he says, knowing from whom you learned it, He's talking about Paul. He's talking about himself. He's talking about an apostle. He's talking about the New Testament. He's saying that you have learned the scriptures since you were a child and you have seen them rewritten by me. Not rewritten in the sense of corrected, but written, extended, expounded on, 
lessons learned from apostle uh, the apostle paul is inspired to be able to write the new testament as were the other authors of the new testament so paul draws in here both the new and the old testament this is what you need if you are looking for confidence for encouragement for the ability to be able to continue in these things then open your bible and in Paul's time to Timothy, open the letters that I've written, right? And in our time, we can open the whole New Testament and look through it and see, learn from the encouragement of Paul's persecutions and perseverance through them and learn from how Timothy accepted the teaching of Paul. And there is much to learn going into the Old Testament and learning from those like Moses who were opposed by the magicians but pressed on and saw the victory of God over the evil of mankind. And then we start to see what we'll get into next week at the end of 15, that the scriptures, the sacred writings, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. That we don't need to go outside of the Bible to gain anything that we might be saved. And we'll get more into this next week, but this even extends to who is able to go. Timothy knew these things from being a child. Children can go through the Word of God and not understand it as well as when they're older, but understand it well enough that salvation can be wrought in them, can be created in them, that faith, that they can practice the faith given by God in Jesus Christ. And then we see why in 16 and 17 that the Scripture has all the authority of God behind it. He breathed it out. He inspired it. He worked through human hands to put His perfect Word in the words and the character of the people who wrote it so that it was perfect able to make people wise for salvation. And that authority worked itself out through salvation to have a a utility, a usefulness in every area of life. For teaching both yourself and each other, for reproof both of yourself and of each other, and when reproved, for how to correct that, and then for training in righteousness, continuing on, persevering. 
that in every way there is a completeness and an equipping for every good work. So to apply these last paragraphs, we should be godly. We should know and be aware that persecution is coming and take encouragement from God's Word, from how He has worked in the past as He has rescued Paul in the past. So He, Paul is confident that Timothy will be rescued and so we can be confident that we will be rescued as well. And then we should be looking to our Bible for a constant source of comfort. We should look to it for teaching, reproof, correction, training. And we should look to our mentors, our disciplers, and follow them. Paul has a great verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, or followers, or disciples of me as I am of Christ inasmuch as Paul followed Christ he wanted everyone to follow him so as we close I remind you of the importance of that of opening your Bible but also of gathering with God's people not only now, especially now, but also to do that deep discipleship like Paul and Timothy did. And then to learn from the Bible how else we might gain encouragement through the Lord's Supper, as we're going to take here soon, or by remembering your baptism and what it means. These are all things given to us that as difficulty descends, it might kindle comfort.